don't be afraid to go get bids from other subcontractors for your overages. Just go do it. You can take over some of your own construction project if you need to. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Joe DeSanto. Joe is joining us from Tampa, Florida. He was a previous guest on the podcast. So if you Google Joe Fairless and Joe DeSanto, his episode will show up. Joe, we're glad to have you back. Thank you for joining us. And how are you today? I'm doing well, Ash. Thank you for having me back, man. I really appreciate that. Take it as a vote of confidence. Yeah, man. It's our pleasure. So today is Saturday. Best ever listeners. I hope you're having a great weekend so far. And because it is Saturday, we are going to do a Situation Saturday where we discuss a specific situation that our guest has encountered. The goal is to give you the knowledge should you encounter a similar situation. Joe is going to discuss dealing with a corrupt contractor on a $10 million deal. Joe also works as a part-time fractional CFO for six companies and one family office and has a great real estate portfolio. Joe, before we get into your particular skill set, can you give us best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Well, I basically a longtime business owner, I guess, an entrepreneur. Right now, I took a down kind of shift in my career, I call it, I guess I say I semi-retired. And now I provide, as you mentioned, fractional CFO services for small businesses and higher net worth individuals. Prior to doing that and moving to Florida, I lived in Los Angeles and I owned a larger company, a couple of companies in the entertainment and advertising space, post-production and production companies. And we had about uh, 35, 40 employees, depending on what was going on. So it's a good sizable business. And we bought a couple of buildings to house our business. Not at the same time. We did them sequentially. We bought one, renovated it, ran it for about eight years, sold that, traded up and bought another one and did full development projects on both of them. So that's where the experience of this conversation comes from. I always liked real estate. I was doing it on the side of my businesses just personally and decided when we were moving and needed more space for our business that, hey, we should own instead of rent essentially and turned our monthly rent into an investment, which paid off quite well. Joe, when I hear a corrupt contractor on a $10 million deal, if you're doing a $10 million deal, I'm going to assume you should know better. What happened? Yeah. Well, the term corrupt is sort of a loose term. <laughs> I mean, contractors often have a bad reputation for just unsavory business practices. I don't know that they don't necessarily fall into the category of corruption in my case. Luckily, I had to enforce a contract and really hold this contractor's feet to the fire, but it was difficult and they just made it a ride from hell essentially. But they're the kind of contractor that ultimately gives contractors a bad name. And in my case, to qualify the deal, it was in total a $10 million project purchase and renovation. The total final renovation cost is about two and a half million. So that just qualifies how much the renovation was versus purchase price. But it was a big project and I only had the money I had available to me, plus some extra to get through it. And there was a lot to do and a lot that could go wrong. Some things did go wrong. A lot of things went right. But 
my big issue was that my contractor ended up just being my biggest problem. They just seemed to want to screw me <laughs> at every possible opportunity they could. It's funny, it was my second major sort of commercial renovation, the first being our first building. And the first building we bought in 2007, 2008. So we literally closed on it. Lehman Brothers did our loan. We closed and then Lehman Brothers went a business two months later. And that was just like a metaphor for the whole thing. It was a smaller project. Our bridge construction financing company went out of business right before we were supposed to start construction. I had to scramble to get loans from all sorts of weird places. I had to trim my construction budget down. Naturally, about three quarters of the way through, my contractor went belly up and basically misappropriated about $75,000 of my money. (laughs) I mean, it was just a nightmare. But at least we could blame it on the financial crisis of 2008, right? Yeah, And and I learned a lot from that. And going into this, I was like, all right, this is going to be so much smoother. The loan's good. The financial industry's not dying on me right now. I got a healthy budget. I got a 10% contingency. And one thing I learned in the last deal was I should have had basically an, an escrow company managing the funds and tracking the contractor's progress and doling out funds and that sort of thing where I was just doing it, giving it, writing them checks, kind of like your average person. And that's why the money got misappropriated. He was spending it trying to get other jobs done. And then he was hoping that more money was going to come in to deal with my stuff. But then all his work dried up because of the crisis. So he was just at one point was, I'm checkmated. I don't have your money. I got a bunch of unfinished jobs and nothing's coming in, whatever. So In this case, I had the lender through my SBA loan acting as sort of the escrow company. So I'm like, I'm like, great, they're going to be there for me to check progress. I've learned a lot of lessons and this is going to be great. I bid it out and I got three bids. I went with the middle one. I didn't go with the cheapest one. I was like, this is a solid company, good references. And the truth was they, by all accounts, were a solid company. They were a, a little bit of a larger contractor, not super mom and poppy. But I think what I learned in this one was that the general practices of general contractors are just unsavory. (laughs) They're just not in the interest generally of their customer. They're not your friend. They're basically trying to, at least in my experience with this one, trying to take advantage of you at every possible opportunity and squeeze as much money out of you as they possibly can. And maybe if I was a repeat customer, someone who had lots of jobs, they wouldn't be doing that to me. But I'm like this one-off guy, basically. So they're like, we don't got to worry about getting this guy's business again. So we're just going to do our thing and just try to squeeze him to death, basically. And I caught on to it. And then we just ended up basically the worst of enemies for the next 12 months. And it was really intense. What kind of building was this? Was this the warehouse? It was similar to the first one. Pretty much was originally warehouse, industrial space. We basically did a conversion to office space. So it was a change of use, which for those of you who know a little bit commercial development, it triggers a lot of issues that you got to do in terms of architecture, planning, dealing with the city. It's not a simple, basic renovation permit. It's a big undertaking. How did you find this contractor? Through my architect. Like I said, I was doing real estate on the side, doing rentals and that sort of stuff. And I was renovating my own houses. I call it the live and flip. 
And I learned a little design program myself and did my own plans for my houses. So the way I did it was on both buildings, I designed the whole initial design of the interior in my home design program. But being these were large projects that needed to go through major city planning, I then hired an architect, gave them my plans and said, there's our starting point. Obviously, I want to hear if you guys have improvements you can bring to this, but I know my business. I know what I need. So functionally, it's better for me to do the first pass. And then you tell me, hey, this door can't be this close to this door or whatever, those kinds of functional things. And then whatever you can do to plus it up, great. How did you qualify this contractor? Did you go look at some of the work he's done? talk to past references? Yeah, basically I got the suggestions or referrals from my architect. They gave me a couple of names and then I bid out another third contractor that previous person had used. And yeah, I did the basic due diligence. I talked to some references, things like that. I always think, what's the point of talking to references? Who in their right mind is going to give someone that might give them a bad reference? Of course, the the person I'm going to call is going to say it's good, but I do it anyway. In my opinion, though, I was like, it's coming from my architect. They've done other projects for them, and I like my architects, so they're vouching for them. I'm confident about it. So we bid all three companies. My architect was involved in that process, and they came in as the middle bid. It's a lot of moving parts and something like that because you don't know everything that needs to be done. Up at the beginning, things change as the planning process continues on. You get lots of stuff thrown at you by the city. So there are variables that you know are going to be variables, but you do your best to get a budget you feel confident about. And obviously, in our case, we had our particular construction budget, which was about $2.25 million. And then we had a 10% contingency allowance pre-approved with the bank. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investing investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Mark your calendars for the best ever conference February 24th through 26th back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. Looking back in hindsight, were there clues that you should have spotted that you ignored? No. It was immediate, almost right away that I was going to have a problem. So I guess I started to see the writing on the wall after the contract was signed and we were getting into it. But in the bidding stage, I didn't have anything that I was particularly raised eyebrows about. And then additionally, 
what I had going for me in this decision was my architect had recommended to me hiring a construction management company. And because I had kind of told them my whole story of the first building and how it was crazy and I was doing it all myself and the contractor <laughs> went out of business and I became the general contractor to finish it out. And I used to joke that I was a goalie basically at the front door of the building. And every time a subcontractor was like, oh man, I got to go back to the Home Depot. I'm like, no, don't go anywhere. I'm going to go to the Home Depot for you. <laughs> Get back in there. So he was like, you should hire a construction manager. So we talked to this one that was kind of partly connected to their firm and they had worked with them and they were like, okay, they had a fine experience. So again, it's like, not like this guy was some shyster that just took my money and never showed up. He was a legitimate contractor. And I was feeling generally good going in, good references from the construction manager, from the architect and middle bid. I'm thinking I'm not being cheap about it. I'm not going to be super chintzy. It should be good. So I was optimistic. Do you think that if you hired a construction management company, things would have gone different? Well, I did. That's what I'm saying. I hired a construction manager. In the end, the funny thing about that was I liked the owner of the construction management company. She was really nice. And her construction manager that was on my project was also nice. But my problem was that I felt from the beginning that we were getting a lot of what I was considered concerning things from the general contractor. And I felt like the construction manager felt like their role was pretty much just to make me feel better about the things that were happening that I didn't like and tell me that this is normal. This is how it goes. This is what happens. So you, know, you like, needed somebody not so nice. Yeah. And I'm, I don't understand. I'm glad you're thinking this is okay-ish, you know, but I don't think it's okay. And I'm starting to get skeptical about listening to you. So what ended up happening, because some things happened with the construction manager where I don't think you're against me and I don't think you're working for them. I just don't think that you care enough. I don't think that you understand that there's a lot of money at stake here. And I feel like it's a situation where it's not your money. So you're not that worried about it. And I'm like, maybe this just isn't the right situation for a person like me. And then of course, as Things were getting weird with the contractor. Of course, the schedule is going to clearly start to expand out. And the construction manager was like, by the way, we only bid this for six months. We're looking at 10, 11 months. We're going to have to charge you more ourselves. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we do this? You stay on to just do the billing and deal with the SBA and the bank and all the paperwork involved in that, because there is a lot of paperwork involved in doing all the progress reports and doing the draws from the bank and making sure all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. I was like, you just do that. You can release the guy that is being my construction manager right now. And I'll just do that myself. Cause I just know that I need to just do it. I just think it's better. So I was like, we'll keep our budget for you the same, you're going to work longer, but all you're going to do is billing. That actually worked out well in these. And I like the owner of that company. She's very nice. And she was sympathetic in the end when I was like, she was seeing what was going on. Yeah. A couple but, comments here. So yeah. it should have been the construction management company's mission to keep you on time. Yeah. I know. So you would think that, right? right. I know. <laughs> I so and for the best ever listeners, if you do hire a construction management company, they need to be accountable to that timeline and there should be penalties just like you would for a contractor. Yeah. Now with references, I agree with you. It's silly to ask for references. It's better to ask for references from their last three jobs. Yeah. 
right? That and, makes and, sense. That's a good point. And then you qualify that when you speak mm-hmm. to whoever, you make sure the job was done within the last X number of months. So it's not somebody from five years ago and it wasn't right. the last three jobs. And I love when a lender is responsible for draws yeah, because they're very strict and they're very conservative, right? So rather than you or I having to hear the sob story from the contractor, hey, listen, we'll get this done, but we're a little behind. Don't worry. It'll be done by Friday. Can I get my next draw? Mm-hmm. Lender is going to say, hey, no, send nope. us pictures. We'll send somebody out to look at it. So yeah. I love that. That was huge. And if you don't have a lender doing it, not many people would, if you're buying money for construction, you can hire basically kind of like an escrow company or bond company, whatever you would call it, to be that person for you. And that's probably worth its weight gold. I yeah, I did not know that. And that's great advice. What is something else that you could have done differently to nip this before it got so out of control? Well, it's hard to say. Let me get into what the issue was. And ultimately, really the issue was really kind of one, well, not just one, mostly one issue. And the problem with this issue is if their clients don't have someone like me, who it's their money and they're concerned and they're actually looking at everything and checking the information they're getting and whatever, they could be the greatest contractor in the world because they're just getting paid what they want to get paid. And the person who's signing off on this stuff, it's not their money. So they don't care how much it costs. And that's why you always have construction projects going so over budget. But basically what starts happening is they bid the project reasonably and as you would expect to get the job. And basically it was list all of the items we're going to do and they would give a cost for that. And then on top of that, they'd add a markup. On top of that, they would add general condition, which is basically not just marking up the stuff, but their time, like having their superintendent on there, having however many of their team on there. So those are the kind of the two ongoing extras. It's like the markup, which is always moving. And then general conditions is basically by the week. I think it was like 4,500 bucks a week or something like that. And none of the stuff in the breakdown of the cost of the subcontractors, plumbing, you know, mill work, whatever, seemed out of line. They seemed reasonable. Now, obviously they say, oh, that's our cost. We make money on markup in general conditions. And I'm like, sure. But obviously they're making money on those line items. We all know that. That's fine. I can accept that. <laughs> but they seemed reasonable. And it wasn't the lowest bid. It wasn't the highest. And it all seemed relatively reasonable. I'd done a handful of major renovations at that point. So I had a pretty decent understanding of stuff, what, what stuff costs. And they get the job. And I, I think this right here is the mentality of the general contractor, is that we bid it appropriately to get the job. And then once you're in and you're locked in with us, Every time there's an overage, we just blow you out of the water with inflated fees. And at that point, there isn't in their mind, and probably in most people's minds, there isn't much you can do. If you're doing a $100,000 renovation, that's not going to add up to that much. You're going to be bummed because your job's going to be 150000 probably, but the scale is smaller. Well, times that by 20, and... Every time they just try to completely screw you on an overage, that adds up to a ton of money when you're doing a multi-million dollar renovation. And right off the bat, it started. It was crazy. So we had a single floor space, but it was tall ceilings. We were going to build 4,000 square feet of mezzanine space in there to increase the square footage, both for our needs, but also to make the whole project a financially valuable project. 
And it was always discussed that those are going to be steel mezzanines. We had a number in the budget, like a hard cost to build the structure and put the cement deck down. It was about $100,000 just to build those. And it was always going to be steel. And we're having our first initial call after I award the job to them. We haven't even met. We're just doing a phone call to kind of get organized. And he goes, well, about the mezzanines. I'm thinking that with what we have in our budget, we really can't do them in steel. We can do them in wood. And I'm like, well, one, we've never talked about doing wood. But two, I don't want them done in wood because I want those structures to be absolutely permanent. I want them to basically be, you can build above them and below them. And if I decide to close my business and rent it out to another business, they can come in and wipe out my TIs. And we're not going to lose the second floor because you built the second floor out of wood on top of my room. It's not even a consideration. I'm like, so how much more are we talking here? You guys, I'm thinking probably steel mezzanine is going to cost you about 300000 just for the mezzanines. And I'm like, wait, so you're saying this is our first phone call. Get your checkbook out to the tune of 200000 extra dollars for something that we've always talked about being steel? He's like, yeah, I just want to keep your expectations. I think that's what it's going to cost. And I was like, well, are you going to bid it out with multiple vendors? And he's like, I don't know. We have this guy we work with. And he's like, we're going to bid it. But he's like, I need full shop drawings for it. So I got to get that done to do the bid. And I'm like, you know, I don't know that you do. I mean, it's 4,000 square feet of steel mezzanine. This is kind of almost like an off-the-shelf product you could get a general idea because now I definitely need the full set of shops and all this. And I was like, you know what? We're going to shelf that because I'm going to go do some research on that. Okay. <laughs> so we get off the phone within literally two Google searches. I find American mezzanines installers, Inc. 50 miles outside of Los Angeles. I call them up. I go, Hey, I'll get this project. We're putting these mezzanines. I'm trying to get the contractors talking about, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't, his prices seem strange. If I just show you my basic drawings and you know, it's 4,000 square feet, can you ballpark it? He goes, Oh yeah, it's 50 bucks a foot pretty much installed. And he's like, depending what kind of concrete you want on the top. Oh, there's not even 50 bucks. Basically the price came out to with the concrete on top, which was a tag on, on, on our bit anyway, $108,000. I'm like, wow, I just literally went on Google and looked up prefab mezzanine and I got a quote over the phone based on square footage because they're like, we only build them one way. That includes the shop drawings. They're very basic, steel pole, blah, 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 blah. You tell us how big, whatever, we give you the shops, you approve them. And it's like generally falls within our square footage plus or minus 5%. And then the only add-ons are like, we have a couple of railing options. One, some are more expensive than others because they're construction. And you get either lightweight or heavier concrete. So I called the contract rec. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I just got a price literally on paper, including shop drawings for like 108 grand, including concrete. And he's like, wow, good for you. That's fantastic. Well, I'm really happy that it's working out. Yeah, awesome. I guess that issue solved. Yeah. And they're part of the steel mezzanine, whatever association, they can inspect their own mezzanines because that's all they do. They've done thousands of mezzanines across Southern California. I'm like, this just didn't take any time at all. Right. And I'm like, wow. Okay. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to give him a pass on that one. Maybe he just hasn't done mezzanines. I don't know. So that's one of those issues where 
I've been in similar situations where I wish I did change orders on everything. I wish we documented everything. Do you wish that you had an attorney write up a proper contract on this? Because oh. often we just sign the contractor's agreement, right? Yeah. Not really well, uh, it a whole the, lot truth of be told, the, the funny thing is, because it starts to get worse, and this is a really important point. The contract you have is really critical. And you kind of, in a way, feel like when you're signing it, that it really benefits the contractor. But I learned that that contract saved me. And it really was their contract. I, of course, had my lawyer look at it. We made a few changes, but he's like, it's pretty standard. The contract actually forced them to keep working after they threatened me to stop working until I signed their change orders that I didn't agree with. So I got my lawyer out pretty much after about the first month. And I said, hey, well, I want to introduce a new member of my team. His name's James. He's also my attorney. And he specifically does work in the construction area. And he'll be on every single email going forward. And of course, that sparked lots of other issues. But back to the mezzanine. So three times the cost. So originally it was going to cost 100 plus markup. Now it's 300 plus markup. But I solved my own problem. We get it under contract with this subcontractor for 108000 including concrete. So I actually even saved money because we had 120 in the deal, including the concrete, because it was 4,000 square feet of concrete. I'm like, all right, let's just see what happens going forward. Because we had other items that were TBD, essentially. So the next item, and I'm like, all right, three times hard cost. That's really being piggish about making money inside your subcontractor line items. I could be with 20%, 25%, not 300% or 200%. Next one is... Low voltage conduit. We were a post-production company, so we had tons of low voltage conduit, both for phone lines, but also for video, audio, all sorts of stuff. And I didn't have a plan for that when they originally did it because we were still working out the configuration of everything, what we were going to do for equipment. It's very specific. And I was like, we'll just TBD that amount. It'll be an add-on and we'll know it's coming. So I do the schematics myself for the low voltage conduit because it's not very permit or city specific. All they want to see is that the low voltage is in conduit in the walls. So I do a basic schematic on top of the architect's plans. I give that to the contractor and I'm like, can you bid this? Here's the low voltage conduit we need. He comes back with a bit of $60,000. And I'm like, that just seems high. <laughs> just, that just seems freaking high. What are you talking about? And he's like, it's what it is. I'm like, all right, let's shelve that. I'm going to oh. go, I'm going to go check it out. I've talked to a, my electrician that I've used for my house and my other construction projects. He bids it out $20,000. I'm like, all right, that's number two with 200% markup on my extras here. That can't be a coincidence. What was the verdict of that? Did you just give him another pass? and say, I got this one too. Well, this is what happened at that point. I go, all right, well, whatever, dude, it's not in your budget. Obviously, I'm not going to give you 60 when I can give the guy that I really know and trust 20, and it's not permit specific. So I'm just going to get that done myself using my guy, Jesus. And he's a licensed commercial contractor, the whole thing. He's a legit dude. So he's like, okay, yeah, I'm sure it makes sense. All right. So next one comes up. Millwork. So the budget's growing. Obviously, we're adding on. 
different things, which I expected, but I'm trying to make sure I stay in lockstep. And I'm talking about millwork. It gives me this price for millwork. It's like $108,000 or something. I'm like, okay, seems reasonable. But I'm like, hey, listen, I need to save some money. And we bid out all this millwork, but I'm thinking I might just take some of it out to save some money. And he's like, okay, well, that's not going to change the price that much though, because it's like a package price, you know, and they kind of like bid it with everything in mind. And it's like, they're going to do less. They're going to want to charge more for each item. And I'm like, that's rough. Okay. All right. Uh, Okay. Okay. Well, let's shelve that for a sec. I remember him saying, it's not like a menu where you can just take this one out and it goes down by this amount. It just doesn't work that way. Like, oh, really? Okay. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to start your own syndication business or maybe you've tried, but you've been unable to get your first apartment deal? Well, it's hard. I know firsthand getting started in syndication is not easy. So have you considered working with a mentor? Imagine working one-on-one with a full-time syndicator who can help you do your first apartment building deal faster, help you avoid big mistakes, and scale your portfolio. If you feel like I'm speaking to you right now, then I want you to check out the mentoring program from my friend Michael Blanc who specializes in helping people get started with apartment buildings. I've known Michael for many years now and he genuinely wants to help people become financially free. He developed a proven system and has helped hundreds of people do their first apartment building deal. I know he can help you as well. To find out more, text the word Joe, J-O-E, to 66866. I know Michael's going to take care of you. Go ahead and text the word Joe, J-O-E to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind and let's get you started with your own apartment syndication business. Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors and I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals if you're like most real estate investors because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals or you can follow up with your investors and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Follow-up boss offers experts seven days a week you can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Where is your construction management company? at this point? Well, at that point, we're a few months in. And like I said, I already released the guy who was being the manager. And I was like, I'm going to do it because I just don't believe you're going to do what I'm going to do. 
because I am going to make sure that I don't go out of business doing this and yeah, you're not. It sounds so, like you're being a pretty lenient guy. And like I said, we knew it was going to go on longer. They were going to want more money. I wanted to save money. So I said to the owner, do the billing. I'll pay you our exact contracted price, but no, you're going to be doing billing for four more months. And let's call it that. And she was like, okay, I can do that if you want to do it. And the construction manager dude was not liking me at that point because I was getting frustrated. So I was like, don't worry, I'm just going to deal with it. Because I knew that construction manager was not going to go do all these things that I was doing. I just knew it. Maybe that's what they're supposed to do. That's what I thought they were supposed to do. But he was not going to be doing that. And I don't know why. So anyway, I go find a mill worker. I give him the list of everything, same stuff I gave the other mill worker and comes back with a cheaper price. But lo and behold, it's all broken out, itemized. He's like, yeah, for that desk, it's $4,000. For that desk, it's this. For that desk, is this. And I was like, oh, well, can I just cut the list down? What if I just take out four of these items? Do I not get as good a deal on the other items? He's like, no. You see the individual price for the item and take it out and you don't pay for that item. I'm like, so it is a menu, actually. Totally fine. I could just take out an item and I should get properly prorated price reduction. Apparently, that's not how the general contractor's mill worker does it. So now that's number three. And I'm like, okay. Otherwise, what's happening, these three items happen to be things that were not, like the mezzanine was permit specific. Yes, but the mezzanine contractor we found did their own shops and they were like this self-contained thing. And basically they kind of fit in to the general contractor's permit world. And they were fine with that. Conduit was not permit related. Millwork is not like permit approval contingent stuff. It's basically furniture. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm taking over millwork now too. And then while that's happening, other things were going on. Like we're starting to do a lot of structural work for the mezzanines. And they're like, we got to get a soil compaction study. I'm like, we do? Are you sure? I mean, no one's asked for that. They're like, well, we're going to need it. It's definitely pretty standard up. I'm like, okay. So I pay for the soil compaction study. It's like $6,000. Lo and behold, it comes back and they're like, oh yeah, you're going to need tons of base under these giant footing, blah, blah, blah. And they're legit, whatever. And all of a sudden getting base under a whole bunch of footings is costing me $25,000. I'm like, what? what are you saying? But certain things like that, they had me over a barrel because they were so embedded in the structural components of things. They were legitimate requirements as it turned out. And I couldn't insert my own contractor into that process without them kind of legitimately saying to me, no, I, we can't basically have you just poking in your own base guy. You can't do that. So what ends up happening is a bunch of those kinds of things add up where I really can't insert myself as easily as I could with millwork or the conduit. And they send me an overage on a change order on paper for $130,000. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? I mean, it's like base, it's a handful of other things, but it shouldn't be that high. It's obvious. So I call the owner of the firm and I'm just like, this is insane. Come on, dude. I know you are proving to me at every turn, you are just going to squeeze the shit out of me on these overages. Like you're giving me stuff marked up 200%. I make one phone call and I'm saving 40 grand. I make one fucking web search. I'm saving $200,000. I know this change order is jacked beyond belief. I'm like 25%. Be cool. 
why are you doing this? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm glad you figured out some ways to save some money, but this is all standard stuff. And he's like, I'll tell you what, we're going to stop construction until you sign this change order. So you can stall on it all you want. And he's like, the longer we are on this job, every week longer we are on this job, that's $4,500 per week in general conditions. So if you want to sit on this change order and let us go do other things, you can do it. But you're going to get a bill for 4500 bucks a week as long as it takes us to get out of this thing. Is that when the lawyers got involved? Yeah, so I tell my lawyer and he's like, they can't do that. They can't basically extort you to sign a change order. All they can do is not do the work you are not willing to sign off on on the change order. They have to continue to do all the other work that they are contracted to do in the way that they bid it. So I got the lawyer out. We fashioned up a nice long letter threatening to report them to the state licensing board and all that. And lo and behold, they showed up and they kept working. They're like, fine, we'll keep working. How does this story end? And what's the total overage on this project? Okay, so if you don't want me to get the hour's worth of therapy out of this, Ash, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You want me to cut to the chase? We're already over on time. (laughs) Okay, I will cut to the end, actually. I would say in the end, I think I took over about eight trades myself because every single change order they gave me ended up being marked up Two or 300%, all eight of them. It was just standard operating procedure. So I took over, as we know, pricing out the mezzanine, Lobo Chonduit, all the millwork, all the finished carpentry, painting I took over. I was getting new electrical service put in, which was a whole nother nightmare that I learned a lot about. Not necessarily a problem of the contractor, though the contractor was not riding Southern California Edison to the degree I was. I took that over under its own permit with my own electrician and saved the gobbles of money. I took over the entire parking lot, asphalt and car lifts, which was under its own permit. And I worked directly with the car lift installer because basically when the final approved permits required pervious asphalt, all of a sudden I had to pay an additional $90,000 to basically trade up to pervious asphalt. Of course, in the end, I only paid an extra $30,000 for that, but I took that over myself. So all in all, I took over about eight trades, all of which were not permit reliant. So they kept doing all the stuff that was like super critical, permit reliant, electrical, plumbing, structural, blah, 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 blah. And I basically put a folding table right next to their superintendent on the job site. And I sat there and was my superintendent number two. I had my trades I dealt with. And I'd say the one thing that, thank God, this was the case, their superintendent that they provided me, Dave, was a really cool guy. He towed the company line, but he was basically always looking at me being like, I'm sorry, I don't know. But basically I made these people so mad because I was getting in their way of doing their squeeze routine that it just became this adversary relationship till like the very, very last day. And I even tried to smooth it over. I took out the guy who is my project manager after the mezzanine thing and the condiment thing, I was like, Hey, how about I take you out to lunch and hang out? Maybe we get to know each other. It should be fun. It doesn't have to be hard. My business is at stake here. I only have so much money. And if I can't get this done, I can't move in here. And what makes this worse is when you move your business and you do something like this, 
all of a sudden you're a ticking time bomb because you release your lease on your old space because you can't have too much crossover because it's cost me $30,000 extra a month to have both places going. So you're like, I released my lease. I have to leave there. They got someone coming in behind me. But if I can't move in here, I go out of business. It's that severe. All my employees lose their job. I end up with a building unfinished, unprinted, no certificate of occupancy. And now I'm trying to sell this thing to save myself at a major discount. It's a disaster. So you have to look at it from my point of view. I don't have all the money you're trying to squeeze it. And he's like, I know, okay, whatever. But in the end, I took over eight trades. I conservatively saved $700,000. And if I had gone down the road and signed all their change orders, that number, no question, would have been higher because I'd be further down the road trapped in their bullshit setup. Probably would have easily been a million. I ended up coming in just about $50,000 over my 10% contingency. So I was out of pocket, about 50K. Got it done for 10% over budget, which was reasonable. I can live with that. But if I hadn't done it, literally, I would have lost my business. It's that simple. I just didn't have 700 extra grand to come out of pocket. And I wasn't going to get any more money from the bank. So it was literally kind of life or death in my mind because it was my business dies. Now I'm filing bankruptcy. It's just a chain of unfortunate events. So it was just so mission critical that I got this done. And I just thought I was going into this. I selected the middle bid guys. They seem cool. They were referred to from my architect. I'm well-funded here. I'm not asking for cheap, whatever. I'm like, it should be pretty smooth. But yeah, Joe. it just it just was brutal. But I survived. All's well that ends well. We got it done. We created at a thousand bucks a foot for the mezzanine. We created about four million dollars of value. So we pretty much doubled our cash investment pretty much the day we walked in. So it got done. Joe. I had to devote a year of my life to it. But, yeah, and that's Joe, worth. <laughs> I'm glad this story had a happy ending. Thanks for sharing some of the heartache that you went through. Yeah, some good lessons with the escrow company references construction management company. How can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Just go to my website, playlouder.com. You can email me, joe at playlouder.com. I probably LinkedIn is the place I'm the most social media, but I don't, I don't do too much social media. So just email me or whatever if you want any advice in this arena. I guess my biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid to go get bids from other subcontractors for your overages. Just go do it. You can take over some of your own construction project if you need to. Thank you again for spending your time with us today. Yeah, best man. ever listeners, thank you for joining us. Have a best ever day.